Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an enemy. He's real, he's vicious, he's effective, and you'd better know all about him. And you better learn how to deal with him. And if you don't, he will do you serious harm. And that's why I'm thankful that Peter, by the Holy Spirit, provides us valuable help in the text for this morning in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. As we're coming close to the end of our study of Peter's first epistle, and we find several practical exhortations to the people of God, but none of them, I'm convinced, is more important than this one. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. I see four things in our text today. Number one, the requirement. Number two, the reason. Number three, the resistance. And number four, the realization. The requirement. Be sober, be vigilant. This is a very important and necessary reminder. In our text today, you will actually find three imperatives. These two in verse 8 and then a third one in verse 9. And these two, be sober, be vigilant, follow hard on the heels of verse 7, where we learned last Lord's Day that we are to cast all of our care upon Him because He cares for us. And that we ought to do. But we must understand that in doing so, that does not make us passive. We learn to rest, we learn to trust, we learn not to carry all of our anxieties and cares around like a burden upon our own minds. But once we have cast our burden upon the Lord, we don't go into a spiritual slumber and just hum the sweet by and by all the way home to heaven. Be sober. Be vigilant. This does not promote passivity, that is, casting all your care upon Him. Casting all your care upon Him does not cancel responsibility. We are enjoined to be alert, to be ready, to be on guard, and to be so constantly because of the enemy who is out to destroy us. Be sober, be vigilant. Be sober. Literally, that word applies to drunkenness, and it means do not be inebriated, do not be impaired by alcohol. But when it is used, as Peter does in this sense or in similar other senses, it has the idea of spiritual sobriety, clear-mindedness about spiritual things. In other words, do not be impaired by the intoxicating allurements of this world. Do not be allured into slumber by the comforts which attend the assurance of your salvation before God and perhaps the earthly comforts comforts which God has so graciously provided for you in your life. But do not allow those to cause you to be unalert to spiritual dangers. Be sober, that is, be free from confusion and be free from the passions of your flesh, which, if they are not carefully controlled, will put you in a very vulnerable position. Be sober, that is, be self-controlled. Be in full control of all of your senses. Be in full control of your disposition. 
Be in full control of your emotions. Be sober. And secondly, be vigilant. Be on guard. Be watchful. Be ready. Like a soldier who was on guard duty, who must spend the night fully awake, a soldier who slumbers on guard duty faces severe penalty if he is found and very, very well may be charged with being a traitor or even worse. Be on guard all the time. Be fully awake. Be ready to respond to danger quickly. Be alert. Know what's going on around you. Recognize and defend all attacks upon your faith, for they are coming from many different directions. And so the requirement is that we be filled with knowledge, that we have fully developed spiritual understanding, and along with that, the mental alertness to apply our knowledge of God's Word to the current situation. That is the requirement that must be adhered to, must be obeyed, unless or else we are going to be damaged, possibly even destroyed, by an enemy who is out to attack us. The requirement. But secondly, the reason. Why is this so important? Because, says Peter, by the Spirit of God, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The reason why you must be alert is because you have an enemy, because your enemy is persistent, and because your enemy is deadly. Because all of God's people have an enemy. Your adversary, the devil. Two words that are used to identify this enemy. Number one, your adversary. And number two, the devil. In that word adversary, Peter is basically picking up the Hebrew word Satan and its meaning, which is enemy, opponent, adversary. In the first place, it has the idea of an opponent in court, a lawsuit or something like that, someone who is there to overcome you. And beyond that, it has a larger meaning of any kind of enemy whatsoever. And Peter is telling us that we have an adversary And he is not just an adversary, he is your adversary, your enemy. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he's not just out to destroy the gospel, he's out to destroy you. He's not just out to destroy the testimony of Christ, he's out to destroy you. He's not just out to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course he is out to do all of those things, but he is out to destroy you. He knows who you are, he has you in his sights, and he is looking for ways to do damage to you. You can't hide behind your brother in Christ, you can't hide in the membership of the church, you can't hunker down in the pew and think that he's going to aim at somebody else and pass you by. He has every one of God's people in his scope. And he's gunning for you and for you and for you and for you and for me, your adversary. 
He is the devil. Diabolos. The Greek word that means slanderer, false accuser, liar. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of lies. He is hatching lies by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions. He is spitting them out rapidly all of the time, everywhere. That's what he does. That's how he is effective. That's how he is so deceptive. You have an adversary, the devil, who is a liar, and he specializes in lying. He is the best liar in all the universe. Think of the best or worst liar that you've ever known. The person who lied so regularly and so effectively and got by with it far too often. His lies seemed to be so believable. And he seemed to be able to deceive so many people and multiplied that by about a million and you've got some picture of what the devil is like. He's a liar. And so Peter is telling us that all of us have a personal spiritual being who is our enemy. He is in active rebellion against God. He is a real person. Peter was not in the slightest bit embarrassed to talk about the devil in terms of reality, a real person. This is not just some malignant influence, ill-defined, indiscriminately floating around through the universe. This is a real person. Don't be embarrassed to believe that and say you believe that. Those who scoff at that have already imbibed one of his lies and have now made themselves more vulnerable to his devices. He is a real spirit being who is in active rebellion against God. He commands all the demons in the universe. He is called a number of times in the Bible the ruler of this world. He has real power, real influence, real ability to do harm. And he's out to get you. His specialty is lying. He twists truth into lies. He takes things and turns them totally on their head and backwards. He causes people to believe that a lie is the truth and the truth is a lie. He raises false accusations against God and against his people. Why do so many people have difficulty believing in the God of the Bible? Because they have believed lies of Satan about the God of the Bible until they don't really know who the God of the Bible is. They have imbibed the the slander, the false accusations, the misconceptions, the distortions of who God is, and that God they have turned against because their adversary has kept them in darkness and deception. He's good at that. And he's not only good at accusing God, he accuses the people of God. He accuses the people of God before the throne of God. We have, we have an advocate there that takes care of that, and he's always on the job. We don't have to worry about that. That's already taken care of in heaven. But we also have an adversary who is busy spinning lies about the people of God on earth to your friends and neighbors and to one another, even in the body of Christ. He will turn God's people against each other every chance he can. He's good at it. He works at it. 
And we can see how unbelievably effective he is at that. We've got to be on guard. We've got to understand these things. And in all of this, what he's trying to do is to undermine your faith. He's trying to weaken your hold upon Christ and upon the word of God. And he does this in so many ways, but primarily by floating deceptions, by, by fomenting lies and accusations and causing people to believe them. And God's children are not immune from this deception. We can believe the lies of the devil, just like unbelieving people, non-Christian people can as well. You have an enemy. You better understand that. And your enemy is persistent. Peter says he walks about like a roaring, roaring lion. He walks about. He prowls. Remember in the book of Job, Satan was described as going to and fro upon the face of the earth. Prowling on the face of the earth. It's also comforting to remember that in the book of Job, he was called into heaven to answer for his activities. He was called into heaven to give an account of himself. All of these things we've said about Satan, we've got to realize he is nevertheless still under the power and control of God. And therefore, it becomes apparent that God is using Satan for his wise purposes. But nevertheless, you need to understand that he is constantly on the prowl. He is restless. He is hungry. He is walking about seeking whom he may devour. He is roaring to frighten us. He is roaring to indicate how ravenously hungry he is. He is seeking us. That's a present active participle. He is persistent. He never goes on vacation. Of course, he's a spirit being. He doesn't need rest. Someone said the devil knows never goes on vacation, so I don't either. Well, that's what I used to say, but now I do because I'm not the devil. I also sleep at night and the devil doesn't do that. I'm a man. The devil is a spirit. But we have to understand that he is persistently in search of prey. He's, he's always looking for a weakness. He's always looking for an opportunity to exploit. He's always looking for a chink in our spiritual armor. And he's always looking for the weaker sheep who are on the edge of the flock, who are, who are straying from the flock and separated from the flock. He pounces on those like a roaring lion. That's what a lion does. That's the way a lion seeks and finds prey. He'll separate other animals from the flock. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I've never seen that personally, but I've seen some videos of that. It's, it's amazing how skillful lions are in being able to do that. And that's exactly what he's going to do with the people of God. This is a spiritual battle. And if he can separate you from, from the church, if he can separate you from the fellowship of believers, if he can separate you from the regular ministry of God's word, then he's got you in a place of vulnerability and then he can more easily pounce on you. Because he's always walking about, roaring, seeking whom he may devour. And therefore, the moment we are careless, that's when our danger begins. When we let our guard down, then we are in a very weak and vulnerable position. Your enemy is real. Your enemy is persistent. Your enemy is deadly. He's seeking whom he may devour. A word that means 
drink down or gulp down. He's not out merely to wound you, though he'll do that if he can't go any farther, and he often does that. But that's not his main goal, his primary goal. He's out to destroy you completely. This is the one who deceived Eve in the garden, sinless Eve in the garden. If he could deceive Eve when she was sinless, how much more easily can he deceive us, even though redeemed, yet still sinful, fallen sons of Adam and Eve, not yet made sinless, how how vulnerable we are. How much more easily can our adversary deceive us if we are not on guard? And Satan has many, many ways to damage and destroy God's people. If possible, he will get us in bondage to self-destructive behavior of one kind or another, and we become destroyed. He will cause us to embrace false doctrine, to believe things that are not true, to believe things that are contrary to the Bible itself. And in that way, he will damage and, if possible, destroy us. He will try to get us to wallow in unhealthy emotions, in anger, fear, anxiety, depression, envy, hatred, and so forth. He is, he is skilled at this. He knows how to do it. He knows how to play with your emotions and to get you to live by your emotions instead of by the Word of God. And if he can do that, he has gained a great entrance into your soul. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That brings us thirdly to the resistance. Resist him, said Peter, steadfast in the faith. The devil can be successfully resisted, and that's encouraging. Resist him because he is resistible. Resist him because it is possible to resist him. Yes, he is a fearsome enemy, but don't fear him, resist him. To cower is to invite defeat, but to resist him in the way that God tells us to is to gain victory. Resist him. Don't flee from him, resist him. We are to flee youthful lusts. We are to get away from the place of sinful temptation. We know where those places are. We know what our weaknesses are. And we are foolish if we linger around those places trying to see just how close we can get without actually stepping into sin. That's folly indeed. We should flee youthful lusts. But we don't flee Satan. We resist Satan. Resist him. Don't bind him. Some people talk as if we are able to bind Satan, but the Bible never teaches that God's people have the ability to bind Satan. There's really only one who can bind Satan. His name is Jesus Christ, and he will do that. And there is a time when he will do it, and that's described in the book of the Revelation. Satan will one day be bound and cast into the bottomless pit. 
But until that time comes, neither you nor I nor any televangelist is able to bind Satan. We aren't told to bind Satan. We are told to resist Satan, and we are told how to resist Satan. Active, determined opposition. And how good it is to know that effective resistance causes Satan to flee. He doesn't hang around all the time, though he's always on the prowl looking for targets, but he doesn't stay with the same target all the time, because if we employ the proper means of resistance, then he will flee. James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's good to know. If we didn't know that, we might be consumed in despair. But submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You say, yes, but he'll be back. True. But the same the same resistance will cause him to flee again. You have to constantly be on guard, but he will flee if you resist him in the way that God tells you to. Remember Christ in the wilderness when he was being tempted by the devil? And we read in Luke 4.13, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from Christ. Forever? No. He departed from Christ until an opportune time. He departed from Christ until he found another time that he thought might be a moment of weakness. He saw the wilderness as a time... A possible weakness, Christ out there alone, separated from his disciples, hungry, separated from food, physically tired, physically weak, separated from the fellowship of believers. It looked like that was an opportune time for Satan. And so he attacked. And Jesus successfully resisted him again and again and again until finally Satan fled. He got away. He didn't hang around until another opportune time. Of course, he came back later. You say, when did he come back again? I don't know. He came back when he thought he saw another opportunity. But that's the way he works. But the good news is that if we will resist him in the way that God tells us to, he will flee. But we've got to stay on guard all the time. If we feel that we want a great victory and now we can coast, thank God the battle's over. I'm tired of fighting. I want to just enjoy glory. Hallelujah for a while. Watch out. Don't let your guard down. Because you have an adversary, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So resist him. Resist him. And he is only defeated successfully by the word of God. And this is what we've got to understand. He is only defeated successfully by the word of God. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Steadfast in the faith. Like granite. Take your stand. Take your stand on what? Take your stand on the word of God. Steadfast in The faith. Now, some have taken that word faith to mean the exercise of personal faith, the subjective element of our faith, our firm trust in God. 
And of course, that's always part of the formula, but that's not what this text is saying. The definite article is used. It is not stand fast in faith. It is stand fast in the faith. And when the definite article is used with faith, it is talking about the word of God, the body of revealed truth, the revelation which God has given, the written word of God. That's what the faith is, the body of faith, the body of truth that Christians believe. This is, this is the Christian faith all written down. And when we believe it, then it has powerful effect in our soul. But here is the faith. Remember what the writer of Jude said in the epistle of Jude, verse 3, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. What was once for all delivered to the saints. The Word of God, the Bible. That's been delivered to us. That's been entrusted into our care. So that from it we may have faith, the subjective faith to believe God, to believe His Word, to draw the spiritual resources from His Word, which can only be acquired by the exercise of personal faith. But personal faith, the effectiveness of personal faith depends upon it being exercised toward the written or the incarnate Word of God. And when our faith is exercised toward Christ and toward the Word of God, then it becomes a real faith, a powerful faith, a saving faith, a gracious faith, an effectual faith. And so this is talking about the Word of God. We resist the devil steadfast in the faith in the body of truth that we call the Bible. Biblical revelation. We resist the devil by believing the Word of God and by obeying the Word of God. That's the way Christ did it in the wilderness. Why do you suppose Christ was tempted in the wilderness? Well, I'm sure there were many purposes, but one purpose was as an object lesson for us. Why do you suppose Christ's wilderness temptation is recorded for us in more than one gospel? Because God wants us to learn from it. What did Christ do when the devil tempted Jesus? He said, quoting every time from the Old Testament scriptures, It is written. And he quoted the word of God. It is written. He quoted the word of God. It is written. He quoted the word of God. The devil even quoted the word of God, you know. He caught on real fast. This, this one does everything according to the Word of God. I know how to deceive him. I'll deceive him using the Word. I will take the Word, twist the Word, distort the Word, misinterpret the Word, misapply the Word, throw the Bible out there. That'll get him. But Jesus knew the Word so well that he could come back with an accurate Statement from the Word of God that exposed and countered the deception of Satan who was trying to use the Bible to deceive Jesus, the God-man. Oh, Satan's a clever one. He has a lot of ways of deceiving God's people. And 
Some of the most effective ones have to do with the misuse of Scripture, the misinterpretation of, the misapplication of the very Word of God. And if we don't know the Word of God better than the average Christian, we will be very easily deceived by our adversary. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. So, we have to know the Word of God. It is written. We have to have, first of all, a good understanding of the Gospel. I find many Christians are quite convinced that they know the gospel, and when you start talking to them about any of the details of the gospel, you often find they don't know much about the gospel at all. That's a deception of Satan, to think that just because you know that salvation is by by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know the gospel. Oh, there's a whole lot more to the gospel than that. That's where that, that's where it begins, a surface understanding. But you really need to get a grip on the gospel, uh, a thorough understanding of the gospel in, in all of its details and all of its intricacies will go a long way toward anchoring you steadfast in the word of God where you will not be so easily deceived by your adversary. You need to understand justification. You need to understand propitiation. You need to understand reconciliation. You need to understand regeneration. You need to understand sanctification. These are just some of the terms that apply to the gospel, the person and work of Christ. You need to to understand those. You need to understand the doctrine of election. You need to understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. You need to understand salvation. And the more you understand it, the better prepared you will be to defend against your adversary to the degree that you don't understand it or to the degree that you resist certain truths that are taught in the Bible, to that degree you are going to have a weakness, a chink in your armor, and a vulnerability that will make you more susceptible to Satan. Resist steadfast in the faith. You've got to know what the faith is. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And beyond the gospel, you need to learn all you can about the Bible. You're going to have to understand Bible doctrine. And that's something we continue to learn and continue to review all the rest of our life. I don't know anybody who knows God's Word as well as he should. I don't. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still reviewing. I'm still learning new things. And that's what all of us need to do for the remainder of our lives here upon the earth. The more you know of God's word, the better able you will be to resist your adversary, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion. So be faithful to learn the word of God and be faithful to apply the word of God honestly to your soul. Allow God's Word to correct errors in your thinking, errors in your doctrine. Allow God's Word to correct 
errors in your behavior, that is sins, things you are doing that are displeasing to the Lord. Allow the Word of God to show you what God's will is in that regard and acknowledge what you are doing as being contrary to the will of God, that is sin, and confess it and forsake it. And keep that process up because as you do that, you are fortifying yourself against the devil. That's how, how we resist him. Now, there's finally a realization, which is very encouraging and helpful in all of this. It's in the last part of verse 9. It tells us, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And that's helpful to know. The trials that you are facing are not aberrations. We keep coming back to that because Peter keeps coming back to it. He keeps showing us again and again that trials, difficulties, setbacks, discouragements that come into our lives are not foreign to the child of God, and they're not caused because we are not living in obedience to the Lord. That's a wrong view of these things. These are things that God brings into the lives of all of His people. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Same sufferings are experienced. Passive. That means are brought into our lives by God. They serve God's wise and gracious purposes. Even the attacks of Satan serve God's wise and gracious purposes. Even the attacks of Satan cause our faith to be tested and purified and strengthened. And the attacks of Satan sometimes cause counterfeit Christians' superficial faith to be exposed. And it dissipates. And it's gone. And they have no more faith. Because their faith didn't rest upon The solid word of God. Their faith rested upon something else. It's good when that kind of faith gets washed away so that that person realizes he does not have faith. Now he can seek it from God. We pray that he shall. So God uses these things in our lives. And Christians are looking forward expectantly to the goal, the final goal that God has in mind for all of this, trusting God. He's wise. He knows what he's doing. But it's good to know, number one, the trials are not aberrations. And it's good to know, number two, that you're not alone. The same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The trials that you have faced are not restricted to you alone. They are common to all believers everywhere throughout the world. Many of them relate to the inevitable resistance to God's children that are found in a fallen world. In other words, they are the evidence of your new nature. You are a child of God with the nature given to you by God, the very life of God within you, and you are living in a world filled with people who have nothing but a sinful Adamic nature, no life of God within them whatsoever, no appreciation for Christ, no appreciation for the Word of God, no appreciation for truth, no appreciation for you. Far from it. And you think that won't cause difficulties, and trials, of course it will. And that's common to all of God's people all throughout the world. That's not just in America. That's everywhere. 
That's not just in Zimbabwe. That's everywhere. That's not just in Muslim countries. That's everywhere. Now, the degree and the details may differ from place to place according to the circumstances which God has designed for that particular place and for those particular people. But actually, our sufferings are all very much alike. They're really very common to all of God's people everywhere throughout the world. All trials are ultimately trials of our faith. Are you having physical infirmities, sickness, illness, pain, diseases that you are having trouble with? What are you tempted to do? You're tempted to doubt God. You're tempted to question God. You're tempted to wonder why a good God would allow anything like that into your life. Satan is going to use this to weaken your faith. Your faith is being tested by this trial of your sickness. So what do you do? You resist him by using the word of God. You get into the Bible and understand what it really says about physical sickness. Not what the televangelist says about physical sickness. That will lead you astray every time. Get into the Bible and find out what the Bible says about physical illness. And then take the word of God back to Satan and resist him with the truth of God's word regarding your illnesses. Material deprivations, financial difficulties. What is that? It's a trial of your faith. Can't you hear the devil whispering in your ear? Has God really said that I shall supply all your needs according to my riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Where's the proof of that now? Has God really said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all and, and, and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you, that God will take care of you? Has the Bible really said that God, your heavenly Father, knows you have need of all these things? Are you sure that's true? Then why are you suffering the way you are right now? Well, you'll have to go into the Word of God. You'll have, again, to resist the televangelists and their idea that anybody who is walking according to the will of God should be wealthy or at least should have all their needs provided for. God doesn't want you to be sick. I've heard that so many times I'm sick of it. God doesn't want His children to be sick. God doesn't want His children to be poor. Ran into a man the other day that I run into from time to time. He's a Christian. I enjoy talking to him. And this is the first time that this has come up. He often asks me, what did I preach on Sunday? That's a good opportunity to talk to him about the Word of God. I've noticed that when I tell him, it usually kind of leaves him with sort of a puzzled look on his face in, in many occasions. And he often tells me what, what uh, his preacher preached on Sunday. And when he told me about his preacher's Father's Day sermon... He said, he told us that God doesn't want you to be poor. God wants his children to be rich. I said, oh, brother. I didn't say this in my mind. I'm saying, oh, brother, don't tell me you're in one of those kind of churches. Because the truth of the matter is, God does want some of his people to be poor. Read the word of God. Find out what it says. God will supply your need. You're not going to starve to death. But you may go through some real deprivations and hardships. And the Bible doesn't promise that that won't happen. The Bible does tell us that God will supply 
our needs, not all of our wishes and desires. God will supply our needs. But when you are feeling the pinch, the sting of lost income, and how are you going to make this payment, and how are you going to take care of that, it's very difficult, and you are tempted to doubt God. All of these trials are really attacks upon our faith, aren't they? When you have a problem with, with painful relationships with some brother or sister in Christ or somebody else who's not a Christian, again, that's a trial of your faith. When you have unanswered questions about God and about His Word that you're not sure how to answer them, many times those become trials of your faith. And Satan looks for all of these opportunities to attack and to twist and to distort truth and to get you to doubt God, to doubt His goodness, to doubt His wisdom, to doubt His faithfulness, to doubt His Word. Him resist steadfast in the faith. And how good it is to know that we are united with all born-again believers everywhere. The brotherhood all throughout the world. The same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Brotherhood. A collective singular noun, it's even stronger than the plural brothers that is found in some translations. But it's talking about the body of Christ. All one body we, all born again believers, the brotherhood. And there is solidarity with other Christians. And solidarity with other Christians in their sufferings. Even as they are in solidarity with us in our sufferings. And we can encourage other believers in resisting Satan and encouraging their faith, those who are going through especially difficult times in places like Zimbabwe or in Muslim countries and so forth. Now, what are some of the lessons that we should learn from this chapter? Well, they all have to do with the importance of God's Word. And so let me review just a few things for you. This should tell us something about about church and the style of church ministry that, that you ought to seek. You ought to be seeking a church that is going to teach you the Word of God regularly, persistently, and consistently, because that's what you need more than anything else. I had a phone call just this last week from a pastor in Virginia who wanted to tell me about another pastor in a northern state who had been uh, dismissed from his congregation. He wanted to know if I had any knew of any uh, churches that were looking for a pastor so that he could perhaps help this brother out. But I've been dismissed from his church in another state uh, because he was pursuing an expository ministry, and they didn't like that. They, they've been accustomed for many decades, however long they'd been there, I suppose, to a topical-style ministry. And that suited them just fine. And they didn't like this line upon line, verse upon verse, precept upon precept, dealing with difficult things in the Bible style of ministry. And so they dismissed that pastor so they could find someone who would give them the frothy, light, psychological style of ministry that they enjoyed more. That's a foolish church. Here they had a gem, a rare man in this day and time, who was committed to expository ministry, they should have understood how important that is, how valuable that is. They should have held on to him with both hands because they may not ever find another one, but they let him go. It's not being smart in the face of this kind of threat. Be sober, be vigilant, 
Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But that not only pertains to the style of ministry that you should seek, it pertains to your involvement, your attendance. Some of you show up at church about once a month or twice if it suits you. Well, that's better than none. But you're not getting very well prepared. You're missing so much that you need. You're you're so vulnerable. Because you treat the Word of God so lightly. You treat the assembly of the saints so lightly. You treat your need of God's Word so lightly. Talked to a man not too many weeks ago, was having some real problems. And um, he wanted to know, he, he came to see me. He'd been to, already been to two counselors. The first two he, he was paying. <laughs> I'm free, so he came to me. And <laughs> because I'm free, I guess he didn't think my advice was worth much. He said, uh, what, what do you think I need? I said, you need God's Word. You better get under a ministry where you're really getting God's Word. Oh, I know the Bible. My dad was a pastor, blah, blah, blah. I don't need that. All I could tell by talking to him, he didn't know the Bible. He just thought he did. He'd been deceived, and he was continuing to be deceived. So he'll continue to go to a psychologist and pay him money and get those prescriptions for drugs that are actually making him less alert, not more. It makes him drowsy, makes him sluggish. But he, he's convinced that's helping him. No. That's a lie of the devil. Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, is walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's out to get you. This has application to children's ministry. What kind of ministry do you want your church to pursue with your children? Well, if you're wise, you want them to pursue a teaching ministry, a doctrinal ministry. Your teens don't need a lot of entertainment and a lot of excitement and a lot of hoopla. They need a faithful man who will teach them God's Word. Your young children don't need a lot of games and playing. They need scripture memory. They need catechism. They need to to understand how God's Word applies to life. If you're wise, you'll understand that. Don't be deceived. This will have application to the kind of Christian music you gravitate to. You need music that has doctrinal content, that will teach you something, versus music that will just jack you up emotionally. Doctrinally dense music. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, is what that verse says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are supposed to be saturated with the word of Christ. That's what you need. And and Satan is so clever, he's got a lot of God's people arguing over styles of music rather than over content. Now, I'm not one that believes style of music 
is of no concern whatsoever. But I want to tell you what's a whole lot more important is the words, the content. Is it scripture-saturated music? A lot of times God's people are just arguing over my emotional music or your emotional music. You know, like when uh, several years ago we had a birthday party for my father. I forget which one that was. He's had so many. (laughs) So many birthdays anyway. This is probably, I believe, number 80, his 80th birthday. And um, my sister likes to do things up big, and she had a band to come and play, and she wanted the band to play the music that he remembers from his youth. Well, at his age, that's old music. And uh, I didn't know any of that stuff. Didn't, didn't, it just sounded like, you know, sounded like, uh, uh, Tommy Dorsey band music to me, but I didn't know what any of those songs were, not a one of them. But you see, they meant a lot to him. That's what he courted with, you know. <clears throat> so that's the way people are. I like my style of music in church. You know, I like my style of music in church. I like music from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Well, I like music from the 80s and 90s. And so we argue over the styles of music. You know, a lot of the, an awful lot of the church music from the 40s and 50s and 60s was a bunch of emotional pablum. It was froth. It did not have strong doctrinal content. You can listen to that in a steady stream. Beautiful, melodious, harmonious. You're convinced that's good music. Not teaching you anything about the Word of God. It's just carrying you along emotionally. What you need is solid doctrinal content that the music will help fasten to your mind. Why? Because that's the way you resist Satan. And much more I'd like to say, but I will close, shall we pray. Father, help us not to be deceived by our adversary. Help us to be alert, to understand what it is that successfully resists him. O Lord, many of us have been deceived. Many of your children are being deceived. Lord, help us to understand where victory is found, and may we be wise, and may we be scripturally saturated, and may we be victorious over our adversary, the devil. To the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.